This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. So my guest today is Paul Churchill. He is the author of a book um, titled um, Alcohol is Shit. And we can say that here because we are um, X-rated <laughs> as a podcast. Um, he is a host of the Recovery um, Elevator podcast and founder of the community Cafe RE. Uh, he started his podcast in 2014 as a way to hold himself accountable for his sobriety. And he's built an amazing community around that. Um, that I am really interested in learning more about. So really excited to have you here today, uh, Paul. Welcome to Beyond Belief Sobriety. Yeah. Hey, John. Thank you very much for having me. I'm honored to be here with you. And it looks like you're doing some really cool work yourself in the, in, a, in a similar space. I have fallen in love with podcasting and uh, it is a, it can be grueling at times, but I love it. And to be able to do this is, um, in the recovery community is is especially valuable to me because this is my recovery as well. So it's very, it's great. I learned something from all my guests. So Paul, um, there's a lot that you do that we, that I, I would really like to talk about, but if you wouldn't mind, uh, a lot of the listeners to this podcast might not, might not be familiar with you. And if you could just kind of start off by introducing yourself by way of your, your recovery story. For sure. And again, John is great here to be here with you. Uh, with somebody else on a similar journey, doing a similar project. This is this is fun stuff. So, name is Paul Churchill. I'm 39 years old. Uh, I currently live in Bozeman, Montana. That's where my my home base is at the moment. Um, doing a podcast has given me the the freedom to be somewhat nomadic, um, but it's just me and my dog Ben. And uh, the last for the last year and a half, uh, I podcasted on the road until the pandemic hit. I had to go back home to Colorado, but. I'll back, uh, I'll back it up before then. I was a normal drinker for about seven years, uh, probably 15 to 22. Uh, and after I graduated college, I had an idea to go out to Spain and buy a bar. So from ages 22 to, to 25 and 26, I owned a bar in Spain. It was the best time of my life and the worst time of my right, life at the imagine. same time. And, <laughs> yeah, John. And looking back, I had a drinking problem before I went out there. And if you put that, you know, recent college grad with a drinking problem going overseas to buy a bar, uh, your outcomes are pretty limited of how that's going to go. And uh, I did a smart thing, John. I walked away from that at age 26. I was blacking out five to five to seven nights per week, had crushing anxiety, had no idea what was going on. I was not equipped with the tools to deal with the emotions, the the loneliness and and really everything. And so I, I found an effective tool called alcohol, um, did a geographical cure, thought, thought the drinking would stay on that side of the Atlantic. Um, and it did, I didn't drink as much. Um, and went to grad school in 2010. And, and that was a year where I said, I I'm done on January 1st, 2010, I quit drinking for two and a half years. But John, all I was really doing was, was staying away from alcohol. And I was looking, uh, looking at it as a sacrifice is I could do everything in life, but I couldn't drink. And that worked. That worked for about two and a half years. And then I drank again, recognizing that there's a whole other part to quitting drinking, John. It's, uh, it's much more complicated and much more in depth than just staying away from something. In fact, to do the, you had to have a life goal to stay away from something that right there is creating a split internally saying I can do everything except like I'm missing out on something. Um, and so it got pretty painful, John, for about two, two and a half more years there until the summer of Summer of July, 2000, or summer of 2014 got really ugly. <laughs> and looking back, all of those things had to happen. You know, some rock bottom moments. I got a DUI 
while driving to work. Um, I ended up in a suicide proof jail sale, had a suicide attempt that summer. Uh, man, I, it was just like I was going through the ringer. Uh, it was hopelessness, day ones over and over and over. And finally, at the end of that summer, um, you know, I drove to a wedding. I was DJing. I'm working the wedding. I drove to that wedding drunk with a broken taillight. And while the bride was about to walk down the aisle, I remember covering up my hand going, oh, shit, I think I know which song to play right now. Um, I did it. I got it right. There's one out of three songs. Um, and I, I successfully DJed the ceremony and I went into cocktail hour and there was that gal or, or a waiter walking around with a tray with wine glasses. And I had four glasses of wine in like 40 minutes. And I had this, this window of clarity, John, even though I was hammered and borderline blacked out, I knew there was no way that I was going to successfully finish that evening. And it wasn't fair to the bride and groom. Um, and so I, I actually called it. The universe aligned for me, John. There was a DJ. I owned a DJ company and there was a DJ of mine that just finished a nonprofit event like three miles away from where I was. That DJ came over, finished for me. I called a friend. They came and picked me up and I had the full on meltdown of surrender acceptance on the way home saying, I quit. You know, I was just such a massive purge of emotions that needed to come out. And I was ready to go to treatment that next day. In fact, I called my parents and called anybody who would pick up. And that was what the, the message was. But when I woke up the next day, John, something was different. And that wasn't on my last drink. Um, that was the end of August of 2014. My last drink was on September 6th. So my first day alcohol-free was on September 7th. And on September 6th, I drank half of a beer. Whether I was on a camping trip with some buddies, and I knew if I finished that beer, um, that it was going to be a long road ahead. So I dumped out half of it, got in my car, and drove home. And over those first 30 days, John, I was, I was out in nature every single day I had to, I couldn't be, I couldn't be in the city. I couldn't be around uh, liquor stores and things like that. So if you have any more questions about that, John, let me know, but that's kind of the, the 30,000 foot view. Well, that's kind of cool. So you, um, to get sober in the beginning, you're, you just went out, got away from, got away from everything. You went out to the woods, you were by yourself. Correct, John. And at the moment, I didn't really know the science behind it. You know, there's so much research about how we can heal in nature. But there's about a 30 minute drive. I'm in Bozeman, Montana, and I would go to these this waterfall up a place called Spanish Creek. And I would drive through Ted Turner's land. And sometimes you see buffalo. And I, I would go there every day. Uh, well, probably 25 of the first 30 days and days I just couldn't. And then I would stay in nature until the sun went down until I could see a star. And I remember looking at the sky and say, as soon as I see that first star show up, I can get my car. It's like a 30 to 45 minute drive home. Um, and I did it and I would repeat the next day, but I'd go out in nature and I would sit by this waterfall. Um, and what I know now is we are all energy beings. We all have positive or energy energetic charges. In fact, um, I think we're positively charged and yours is negative. That might be flipped, but simply getting outside in nature and, and sometimes I do it with my shoes off. It re it's really grounding. And so those first 30 days, yeah, there was anxiety, there was depression, and there were energies just going everywhere. But me sitting out there next to these large trees, um, next to the flowing water and nature, it was really grounding. Um, and I felt better each day. Uh, yeah. Well, that that's that I've, I've not heard a story like that. That's pretty cool. Um, and then you so how did you get into the podcast? Sure. And I, and I, and I want to be clear, it wasn't my program it was only <laughs> nature, right? I mean, I was, I, I was being helped and supported all the time. Sure. I would go to, I went to plenty of 12 step meetings 
the first the first year. And in, in fact, John, I still occasionally go to twelve step meetings, probably once a week, maybe once a month, mostly. Uh, it's got some really good friends in in the program. Um, and so for the idea for the podcast, it was about two months, about sixty days away from alcohol. I was going to, and I was going to an AA meeting, John. And um, hang on one second. Okay, going to an AA meeting and. The stigma, you know, there's a stigma surrounding drugs and alcohol, right? And it's our deepest, darkest secret for so many of us. Yeah. And I remember I was like ducking and dodging behind trees. I just didn't want to be seen if somebody drove by. And then I said the three most dangerous words that I think somebody on this journey can can verbalize internally or out loud. I said, you know what? I've been two months away from alcohol. I got this. And those are the words looking back in, in my, my journey. When I so whenever I say I got this, it's like a precursor to a relapse. It just always is. So I recall sitting out there 60 days away from alcohol saying, I got this. I don't need to go to the meeting. And I just stopped in my tracks. And I said, all right, Paul, let's take an honest look at this. A, you don't got this. There's plenty of evidence behind you to show you that, no, you don't got this. If you go in your car and not go to this meeting and not do something differently, we pretty much know what's going to happen. So I went to that meeting, but also at the same time, I had an idea for a podcast. I love to consume media in, in that format in podcasting, love podcasting. And at the time I had been doing research or listening to recovery podcasts. And I, part of it was I was focusing on the differences and not the similarities, but there really wasn't one that resonated with me in that time. And John, I think you started in 2015 too, which is kind of the wild west for recovery podcasts. There was like five or six of us. Now I think there's over a hundred recovery podcasts, which I think is fantastic. And I think there's a space for anybody who wants to create a project in this space. Um, And so I had the idea to start a podcast and I didn't care who listened. I didn't care if it was myself or Similar with you, John, I bet. Yeah, it's as long as, you know, I stayed away from alcohol and and if a couple people listen along the way and it helped them as well, then then there's two huge wins right there. And so I started a podcast. My first episode came out, I believe, February 26, 2015. And I got my first email like a couple months later and I was too afraid to open it, John. <laughs> I was I was too afraid, right? The stigma. I was like, oh, here comes criticism or whatnot. And and I, when I finally emailed it, it was somebody saying, hey, cool. I'm also on the, you know, quitting drinking and, and good job. Keep it up. And so that's where the idea came from. And gosh, it's been five or six years later. We're still doing it. I took a break from the podcast uh, for season two. And I'm coming back behind the mic very shortly. And I'm excited to get behind the mic. Uh, but John, I bet, I bet you can resonate with this. It's been, you know, I did 277 interviews with people who have quit drinking or trying to quit drinking. And just that hour alone, that's 277 hours with me chatting with somebody else on this journey. And, and Bill W., the founder of AA in 1935, that's, that's what the whole program is based on, is working with somebody else who is also actively trying to quit drinking. So it's been tremendously helpful in my journey. And it's, I've had to open up my ideas and learn different modalities um, and read so many books that I never would have come across had I not have spoken with, with interviewees. So I imagine it's similar for you, correct? Yes, absolutely. It is. I don't even know how to verbalize what it means to me um, and how much has helped me, but it's opened up the world to me. And like you say, books that I might not have read, and I couldn't even, even imagine reading a book and then getting to speak with the author. 
But beyond that is listening to the stories of the people that I've talked to since over these last years. And when you're podcasting, especially when you do the editing and all that kind of stuff, you listen very carefully, probably more carefully than you would at a 12-step meeting or something. You really get that story. And I swear to God that all those stories are still with me. They, I remember what these people have told me and I have learned from them. And I have changed and been transformed as a result of that. But every once in a while, I get an email from someone telling me. So that's what it means to me. But every once in a while, I get an email from someone else telling me what it means to them. And I don't know how to respond because it's like, you know, if someone says, this podcast has saved my life or you mean so much to me and blah, blah, blah. You hear these things and it's like, I don't, it's hard to believe that something like this could do that. But this is a very personal medium. And um, we have a community here too. And beyond belief, uh, sobriety, uh, we have like regular listeners and we stay in touch with each other through social media. And so we are kind of a family, you know? And so, um, I just take it and I just say, I'm so grateful that you're sober and I'm so grateful that you listen to this podcast and it means something for you. It's helpful to me to hear that. So yeah, that's mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And talk about accountability, John. Uh, we've all, most people, when they quit drinking, it's only a matter of time before they have a drinking dream. And I had one, I think like two and a half years in where I relapsed. I call it field research too. I'm not too hot on that word because um, there's a lot of lessons learned on a relapse. It's a heavy word. I think it's a word I need a ditch. But um, yeah, I had a drinking dream. And in the dream, I got behind the microphone and, and told the whole audience, hey guys, drank last night. I'm restarting my sobriety tracker. And it was such a demoralizing dream, right? And it just, and I woke up and I'm like, oh man, I can't. Um, you know, but John, like if I drink again, I shit, life can come at me any day and any, in any moment, you know, I'm not, I'm not on eggshell sobriety. I, it's like the furthest thing from my mind right now, but Hey, I live on planet earth without a spaceship and anything can happen. I didn't know if I do drink, the audience is going to be there to support me and, and help me back, back up and find, and find my footing. But gosh, what a, it's probably same with you, right? Like it's some incredible yeah. accountability. Yeah, it, it really is. And I, um, and this kind of gets me to the in an area that I wanted to talk to you about. And that's the stigma of alcohol. Um, and because I'm, you know, uh, re relapse is part of this, you know, uh, but sometimes people can just beat them up, beat themselves up a little more than is necessary. They feel like they have to start completely all over again if they should have a lapse. When in fact, you haven't forgotten what you've been built up in your in your previous recovery before that lapse. And you can, you can continue to build on your recovery. You know, I kind of see recovery as kind of a process of change. And if you have a lapse, don't make yourself, don't make yourself think that that means that you were doing something wrong necessarily, or, you know, so I don't know. I just, I just have a feeling that sometimes we put a little too much emphasis on that. Um, not to say it's not important to maintain, um, abstinence, but if one should lapse and it's common early on. And when, as we try this, um, don't beat yourself up. It's okay. I like how you said that, John. And it, it's, if, I think too much in this space and sometimes in the rooms of 12 steps, it's, it's all or nothing, right? Well, I drank, I'm thinking, I got, I got to start over. Right. And, and that's not, that's not true. And, and energetically it's, it's not true where, um, yeah, there's so many ways to describe addiction and, and departing from alcohol, but here's one that I like, that's going to, that, that should help listeners uh, off what you said, right? So Newton has a third law of motion and it's an object in motion will continue in motion until acted upon something of equal or greater value, right? So 
when we have an idea or concept of an alcohol-free life, sobriety, right? That's just, that's a, that's a thought. But then when we have more thoughts, we start to accumulate these thoughts and every thought has an energetic weight, has an atomic weight. So if you could take that idea, I want to quit drinking, put it on an atomic scale, there would be mass to it. And we keep building momentum. We keep putting thoughts around our alcohol-free life, regardless if we're on day one over and over and over and over. But eventually what's going to happen, we're going to hit a tipping point. That's when the momentum of our desire or our goal to quit drinking is larger than the addiction. The bundle of neurons, the bundle of connections weighs more or has more momentum than the addiction. And that's a magical moment, right? And even when we hit the tipping point, which is, you know, we are moving forward in life without alcohol, we can still drink again. But it's so important to learn the lessons and throw it out. Just forget about it. Let the past die and let it die hard. Get right back on it. Um, yeah, that's I, when we get out of the story and look at it in terms of energy, I found it's a lot easier to, to navigate this alcohol-free life. Yeah, I like looking at it that way. You know, when I was listening to your TED Talk, you, you, meant, you said something that um, resonates with me. Um, I grew up in the 1970s, uh, went to high school in the 70s, graduated in 1980. And at that time, um, they, told, they told me not to use drugs, stay away from drugs. My parents would have killed me if I used drugs. But have a beer. It's okay. Drink. It's what we do. Um, back at that time, uh, me and my friends would drive around in our cars drinking beer or whatever. And the cops would pull us over. Oh, beer. Just pour it out, boys. Move on. Whatever. It was not, you know, that's how it was back then. Of course, later in the 1980s, it got uh, a little more serious about the laws with drunk driving for a good reason. I mean, we were killing each other. But um there that 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 no one no one ever talked about alcohol just being a dangerous thing in and of itself and you mentioned that in your ted talk and you said that you felt like you've been duped by alcohol i wonder if you could talk about that a little bit for sure you know and i and i don't want to come across that i'm a victim right that uh oh i was 21 years old and i went to the supermarket and bought booze and how could this happen to me how could you know it's it, it does happen. Right. And my grandpa was an alcoholic. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to come across like I'm a victim here, but there's a huge component with, with alcohol right now that is just not being portrayed honestly out there. Um, and by the book, uh, the numbers, alcohol is the most dangerous drug in the world. It kills more people every day. Um, what do you say? It kills more people each year than every other drug combined. And that's every day too there was a guy named Dr. David Nutt. He was a London researcher in the UK and he was hired by the British government to put a harm score on 20 of the world's most dangerous drugs or most addictive drugs. I think that's what it is. You know, coffee was even on there, you know, marijuana, magic mushrooms, heroin, crack, cocaine, all that stuff. Um, and when he tied in the economic impact that alcohol has uh, on society, guess what came in at number one? It was alcohol. Um, and alcohol kills about 3 million people worldwide. And that's just attributed to alcohol. You know, if you go in for heart disease, you're going to say, oh, you died of heart disease, but you're not even alcohol is going to be mentioned. So that number of four or 3 million is estimated to be drastically underreported. And we had a pandemic that just killed four, 4 million, I think, and counting. Yeah, that's more, you know, it's three to 4 million. Um, and again, if it were accurately reported, I think alcohol is much more dangerous than COVID. So, um, and and that's, you know, that, that, those numbers are out there. Of course they don't, how do I, how do I, how do I say this in, in a non victim way? Um, 
you, you know, I, it, it's, it right now where I'm at with six and a half years away from my last drink and, and a, with a, I look back at it and I'm actually extremely thankful for everything that went down. I wouldn't change a thing, but that was definitely a big impetus with the podcast, John of saying, wait a second, if I can help somebody to not go as far down this road as I did, then saddle up. I mean, this is, it, it, and, and with any addiction, you're fully ramped up and going before you know it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do see, I do see a movement that's kind of coming along. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that describe themselves as sober curious. You know, they might not have, they might not have had um, the problems that you and I have had with, with alcohol, the life problems that come with it, but they're just making a healthy choice for themselves to not consume alcohol because alcohol itself is a poison. It's not, it's not good for us as human beings to consume. And people are beginning to realize that. And I'm, and I'm hoping that we'll see a change with how society views alcohol in relation to other drugs, because, um, you know, uh, you don't, you don't have to, um, you don't have to go to the depths that you or I went, um, if you want to stop drinking, I don't think, I think that, um, you know, it's not easy, but, um, at any point, um, a person can stop and you don't have to put any sort of a label on yourself to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I love the term sober curious. And I think it's great that there's, there's a whole fleet or a new vernacular of like softer entry points. Sober curious. Another way to say it is like, well, alcohol is just like kind of, <laughs> I, I know. And you know, it's funny too. You wrote something on your, um, I read something on your podcast, your website. Um, you have one question there. How do you know that you're an alcoholic? If you've ever asked yourself, you have a problem with alcohol, then yeah, there you go. And you can stop asking right there. And I've always said the same thing. If you, th- if you think that you might have a drinking problem, there you go. <laughs> Cause if you didn't, you wouldn't have to even think about it. For sure. Uh, it's, it's really that simple. And, uh, I, I like the sober curious mo- movement and again, another way to say it is sober. Oh, I'm sober curious. Another way to say that is, well, alcohol is just like kind of messing up my life or I'm like a little bit addicted to alcohol. I'm starting to question it. But if that's the word you're comfortable using, hell yeah. And again, alcoholic, like that's a loaded word right there. I have, yeah, I've broken up with that word a couple times. And, you know, when I go to 12-step meetings, hey, my name is Paul, I'm an alcoholic for respect, that a deference for the program. However, when I speak to kids, um, and sometimes I do a classroom exercise where I write the word alcoholic on a board and whatever word comes to mind, I'll write it down. I mean, the, 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 the stigma that comes with that word, when in fact only 5% of alcoholics or people that struggle with alcohol fit the bill of, you know, living under a bridge, homeless, brown paper bag, paper bag, divorced, bankrupt, homeless, um, really only 5% of people. What I have found the majority of alcoholics or the majority of people who have reached the conclusion that alcohol needs to go, they are high functioning, high earners. They are in relationships. Um, and we have data to back this up. We've done a couple, um, we pulled the listeners and it blew my mind. In fact, uh, we make more than the average person. We're in more relationships than the average person. Um, we're high, more educated. It's crazy um, how high functioning, not even with alcohol, just we are very high functioning people. Um, yeah. Uh, that, when you that, think that about what alcohol. we have to yeah. go through to continue with our addiction, when I, when, I, when I think about how I used to just try to function and keep my drinking going, that, that, was, uh, that was a lot of work. That was a, that was a tremendous amount of work. I don't know if I could 
uh, if I'd even want to do that now. But yeah, I'm with you. I, I think it's I think it's interesting. I don't know what to make of it. Um, I'm kind of glad to see that there it does. There seems to be some sort of an evolving understanding that alcohol by itself um, is the problem, and it's not that you just have these freak people who um, misuse it, but. <laughs> But that it can be addict. It's an addictive substance, and anybody can uh, fall into the um, trap of addiction. Definitely, I think if somebody is exposed to enough alcohol, um, that eventually, yeah, they're going to cross that threshold. A big part of it is the environment, um, and all of us across the globe have never been more flexed, um, the more pressured, or the environment has never been more conducive to reaching out to an external substance for inner wholeness, right? Um, you know, so alcohol has been around for, for millennia. The Aztecs used it in ceremonies. Prior to popular belief, Native Americans were using alcohol well before uh, pre-Columbian times. Um, and so, but it's more of in the industrial revolution and the fast-paced, breakneck, bre- uh, fast-paced uh, world that we're living in today that uh, we need sedatives. We need um, an external substance to make us feel better internally. You know, alcohol, again, I think is the most dangerous. It gets, it gets bad, fast and ugly. And, and that's a, that's a big part of recovery where if, 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 if people just quit drinking and that's it, like I did for two and a half years, it's, you rarely have I met somebody who has, who's been successful that way. It's important that we find other ways to, to work with those internal emotional pangs, meditation, yoga, 12 steps. I mean, there's infinite ways to recover, but just leaving alcohol, which is, you know, it's a sedative, it's a tranquilizer. Um, it's tough. It's tough to, to not replace that with something. Yeah. It's, it's really the most difficult drug to come off of too. Um, and most dangerous if to, to stop alone sometimes. So anyway, uh, I'm interested also in how did, um, the cafe RE come about? Did that spring off of the podcast naturally? Um, How'd that evolve? John, I had, I had a listener email me and said we should do a Facebook community. Um, that was not the initial Cafe RE. It was, it was just called Recovery Elevator Accountability Group. Um, and after about a year of doing that, it, yeah, then we launched Cafe RE. You know, it, it became like, I mean, I was volunteering like 30 hours a week doing this, this podcast, um, running the groups. I'm, I'm sure you know a little bit about this. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And so then we launched Cafe RE, which was the paid model uh, in 2016. And it's, it's been great. We've, we've um, I've made plenty of mistakes. <laughs> we've learned a ton of lessons. Communities can be messy. And that's not just this space, just communities in general, right? Well, that's good to but, hear because I have a little Facebook group that has problems from time to time. And I just, I wonder if it's just unique to, to my, to my little um, sector or not. <laughs> but anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, John, it's not, it's not unique to your group. It's it's not unique to my group and it's not even unique to this space. No, yeah. I mean, just running a community uh, is, is, is hard. And it human hard. beings have yeah. a flawed brain. Sure. Right? <laughs> Turn on the news and you'll see that real quick. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, it's a great community that you've got there. Um, I, that's, that's something else that I'm interested in. Some, some of what I've read recently, um, there are so many people finding recovery now outside of the traditional resources. So instead of going to a 12 step group, um, they're finding communities like yours, you know, they're finding uh, people on social media. Um, they're listening to podcasts or reading books. Um, there's all kinds of resources now for people to find recovery and I think it's I think it's amazing and incredible. And I wonder, um, 
what you're seeing in your community, uh, the people who are in that community, um, is there, is there any one thing that any element that kind of, kind of runs through as a commonality as far as how they view their recovery or is it pretty much over the map? Sure. So we're, we're a collaborative effort. We are all encompassing. It's not like we're, we don't really have a niche, right? Um, but we are heavy on community. That's the one thing um, that I have found that worked. And the one thing that the, our members find that works and it was hard with COVID. You know, we have a lot, we used to have a lot of in-person meetups. I just got back from our first in-person meetup since COVID. It was Atlanta, Georgia's 50 of us total that came from 18 different States. So the one modality that I see is when people finally embrace community. And what I mean more specifically with that is opening up to somebody, somebody else on a similar journey uh, about your struggles with alcohol and about your goal to quit drinking, because just putting that out into the universe, right? Just putting that energy, which is a thought out into the field, into the universe, um, that, that works. It works. And, and when we get together, man, it's like we're on day, day seven of summer camp on day one with the connections happen so fast. We go right past the small talk. Hey, I'm Paul. What was your rock bottom moment? I mean, like the, how fast, we build connection. In fact, um, I, I, th- I think addiction, again, I wouldn't change anything with it because I can go to a, a meeting or a conference or an event and I've got 50, a hundred new friends instantly with this really cool thing called recovery. Yeah. Yeah. That community aspect really is the key, I think. And looking back on my recovery, I could say that, oh, I did, I did the, I did these steps or whatever, but really what did it, what really helped me more than anything were the people in my life who were doing the same thing as me and we were supporting each other in that common effort of just not drinking. Um, I was really lucky at the time. I was, I was young when I was um, getting sober and ran around with other guys my age and, and we did, we did things together you know, and it was that bonding that, and support that I knew that I had that, that meant so much to me, I think. Yeah, John. And and when you say community, people already have a predetermined image of what that's supposed to look like. This right here is a micro, this is a micro community. You've got Paul and John, this is a little community right here. And if a third person is watching or listening, then they're part of the community too. So it doesn't have to be like this structured group where you're sitting in a circle you're reading preambles and things like that. Um, it can be three people or two people at a Starbucks or even this right here. Absolutely. In fact, I was talking to a guy who said that he used to watch with a friend. They used to watch the, um, comedies, the series mom, which is about a a woman in recovery. And that was, that was their thing. And then they would talk about it. You know, that was like their meeting. That was their recovery. That was just the two of them together watching the series mom. Um, another person I had on my, on a, on an episode, she has a book club and she said that, you know, people would give her a hard time because says, oh, you're just getting s- sober on this book club. And she says, no, it's not just, it's, it's the people that come to the book club. You know, it's the community around the book club that is keeping her sober. And that was her recovery. Yeah. She's learning a lot from the books and so forth, but it's not just ha- reading books that is keeping her sober. It's the bringing the people into her life. She says, if, if all she did was sit by herself and read the books, it wouldn't have helped her. But having other people come and talk w- about the books with her is what makes a difference. Uh, that's a great point, John. In fact, yeah, you can't, you can't read or think yourself out of an addiction. You can in the short term, right? Um, but you're button up against the unconscious, which is 95%, right? You're 5%. This is one of the reasons why it's so hard to quit drinking. You're conscious, you're 5%. You wake up and say, I am going to quit drinking for the rest of my life. 
sounds great. But then the unconscious, you're going up against the larger part of that. And so, yeah, you can think, you can try to read yourself and think yourself out of an addiction. It doesn't work in the long run. But like you said, I love how that gal invited others. And there you go. There's the community component. Yeah. So what, what kind of advice would you give someone who is just starting out now? They're questioning their relationship with alcohol. They think they need to quit. They think they have a problem. They need to quit. What, what would you say to the person that reaches out to you um, in that way and just says, you know what? I, I think I really have a problem with alcohol. Yeah, I would, I would say, make sure you're, you're certain on that. Right. And there's the million dollar question. Do I have a drinking problem or not? And that can be answered if you've ever even thought that question. Um, I asked my brother who's not an alcoholic. I was like, Hey Mark, have have you ever thought you had a drinking problem? He's like, Nope. So normal people don't think that. So once you've reached that conclusion and they need to make sure, all right, this is something I want. Cause a lot of people, they know they have drinking problems and it's just not really on the radar to quit. And, and that, that's okay as well. There's really, really no judgment. Um, so if you, if you, if you, if you got the problem, you want to quit. The next thing I would say was don't is don't do it alone. Right. Um, invite other people on your journey. This is an opportunity an addiction. This is an invitation to open up, to connect. So I feel addiction is the opposite of connection. Johan Hari is a great Ted talk. The opposite of addiction is connection. And so when we are addicted to an external substance, we are obsessed with, with something external to find that connection. Right. Um, and, and so that's how we got to do it. We have to flop it. We have to find ways to connect and it doesn't just have to be with people. That's where I'd start with people who are also on the same journey and also people who are just starting the journey. Cause it can be intimidating going to an A meeting in your first 30 days. And you know, John across the, the, the circle has got 28 years, right? It's, I've been to those meetings where there it's, it's almost, it's, it's, you're like, wait a second there, no way I'm ever going to make it that far. Um, yeah. And so there's plenty of communities out there. And, and again, AA is a great way to, great way to go. But in 2021, we're in a great time to quit drinking. There's, there's never been more modalities. Right. And you can mix and match. It's like, you don't have to put yourself in one camp. You don't have to say I'm smart recovery, only smart recovery, or I'm, I'm life ring and only life ring, or I'm AA. And, you know, you can mix and match and do all sorts of things. And, um, I, and I think more and more people are realizing that I'm not, I'm not saying anything that nobody else already knows, but, um, myself having come up and like, this is the way it is, you know, this AA, this is it. This is the only way. And for a long time, it wasn't, it certainly was when I was first starting out, there wasn't, I didn't know of any other, any other way. Um, it was before the internet and so forth. So, um, I, I had to go to the library and read things, <laughs> but anyway, the, sorry about that time. Oh, with the, the older you get, the more you talk about, it was difficult back then. <laughs> I would, I'm always, I love to hear those stories back then. Right. Yeah. Like your, your story of the seventies and you're drinking and driving the cops like poured out, you know, it was no big deal. Yeah. yeah. The society was just, pretty lax about things back then and really got, really got a little more strict uh, in the eighties, which unfortunately was when my drinking was at its worst. And uh, so I started getting in trouble with the law at that time. Um, one thing I want to talk about before we go is the, uh, your team. I was super impressed going through your website and you have all these people on your team that do different different things. I mean, you have someone who helps with editing the podcast. You have someone that helps with the show notes. You have someone who helps with the social media. That's incredible. How did that ever come about? And can you talk about that a little bit? Great question, John. So recovery elevator 
and another uh, just recovery is has been the best teacher I could have ever asked for. And I think there's something we have in common. And I know a lot of people on this journey do is we were not good at asking for help. Yeah. And I, and I, I reached like stressful pinnacles at each time was finally like, I either got to quit or ask for help. I was, I was horrible at asking for help, but on the flip side, I'm actually doing people a disservice in my community by not asking for help because being of service, as you know, John, this is, this is a great way to depart from alcohol. So what I found, the more tasks that I delegated, um, it helped them. It helped me. It was a win-win. And, and now it's, and now it's really neat. I've got, I've got a payroll. I've got, I've got staff all across the country. I think we have like seven or eight volunteers and eight paid staff. And it took a while to get here, John. And, and, and then with that, I'm, I'm a visionary. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm the own human resources department and I've never been good. I'm a people pleaser, which means it's really hard to be a good, effective manager, right? You want to make everybody happy. So I've had to learn how to set boundaries and how to be fair with people. And of, of course, I've made mistakes doing this. But um, the, the team, it's, it's, you know, whatever I can pretty much say is like, oh, my gosh, I need help with something. And then the next day, like, I'll get an email. It's just it's neat how it's worked out. Um, and there's a lot of people that want to get into this work and they don't know how or what the starting point is. And really how that all started, which was show notes. <laughs> I think like seven or yeah, like five, four or five years ago, we started doing show notes. And two of the gals who did show notes for me are now on staff. And it's just a great way to get to know each other, develop the working relationship. Um, and I was reading the bios about hard. some of them. And it was so neat because one of them said that I just love this podcast and I was listening to it and it meant so much to me. And then I got to be able to write the show notes for the, for the podcast. And I could, I could see how that would be really meaningful and, and, and very helpful for you. But um, I think I can learn something from you because I, I am there. I am there. This, this, this podcast um, has really taken off and it is, it, it's a load of work uh, to do everything. So to have a team like that is incredible. And they look, they look wonderful. It's amazing. And you're in everything that you do is this, this is superb. The quality of everything, um, the website, the podcast, the quality, everything. And, um, it's really reasonable too. I mean, is it really only just $25 is, is the fee, the fee for, for people? Yeah. That want to- yeah. It's, uh, we're at, we're at 24 a month okay. right now. Um, and we've had some criticism from, not AA, but members of right. AA that said, oh, recovery should be free. But and that's not. okay. But it's not I mean, either. It's <laughs> not <laughs> either. If, 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 you, if you go to AA for a month and it's free, then you're a cheapskate, man. You're, like, you're I, spending I put, probably at least 30. You should be, if you're putting up a dollar in the basket and you go, <laughs> you should oh, be yeah, spending I, at least $30 a month on an AA meeting. For sure. I'm like two to three bucks in the basket every <laughs> yeah. time. So even that argument, it's like, well, um, but yeah, with, with the value, it's 24 a month that's and amazing. we have over 70 yeah, 70 chats a month. There's like webinars on Zoom, uh, in-person meetups. We pair you up with an accountability partner. We do book club. We do movie club, the accountability groups online. We have four groups. We cut them off at about 350 people. And then we start another group. And it's all about, we do that because actually there's a law of 150. The human brain is only able to make deep, intimate connections with 150 people. And you might say, well, yeah, we kind of accidentally stumbled stumbled upon this, and we're at three fifty because only about forty five percent of our members are active in the group. So that actually brings us back down to that one fifty. You, in fact, Hutterite colonies and Amish colonies, or I know Hutterite for sure, but a lot of like Native American colonies they would split at one fifty. It's just that maximum number, and like that's how a lot of armies are built. It's just that one fifty is the magic number. So yeah, we put you in groups. 
Um, you get discounts on the courses, uh, sober travel and with cafe RE it's a, that we have that it is concluded with a ditching the booze course, which we offer twice per year. That's a six week course and that's included in the membership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it was a really good deal. I think I thought, well, this is really, really nice to be able to, to offer this to, to people who are, um, just starting out in their recovery or maybe who have been in recovery for a long time and are looking for, for a community. So um, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention and coming on uh, this uh, podcast. It uh, means a lot to me to have another podcaster on here and someone who's in recovery. Um, I think I will learn a lot from what you have done and try to do, try to see if I can get some help too, because <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> Let me know if you have any questions with that, John. I'm uh, happy to help. And you're a great interviewer. I've done several interviews myself. It was really fun chatting with you. Oh, I enjoy it. Thank you so much for that too. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.